You can turn in your uh, Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. So Ephesians 2, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses of this wonderful passage of Scripture this morning. But I want to share uh, some of why we're in this text and what we're going to be doing the next even six weeks beyond uh, this Sunday. Because we're not going through a book of the Bible like we typically do. We're going to go through the book of Deuteronomy starting at the end of September. But we're taking seven Sundays uh, to to go through a series of texts, a series of sermons that we're just calling values. Uh, and I wanted to share some of the heart behind this. Um, I have since I started learning basics of biology, which I probably still just know basics, uh, but since I started learning when I was younger, like middle school and high school, I've always marveled at the human body, the complexity of it, uh, just the various systems and body parts and organs and things, and this intricacy of how God has made us and wired us, so to speak, where there's all these different parts, all these different systems that each do their own thing, in some ways each function uh, in different varying ways, but within every as best as I understand at least, within every cell of every organ, every system, within every cell, and then within the nucleus of that cell, every single one has the same DNA encoded in it. Whether it's a blood cell or a cell in your lungs or in your brains or in your nerves or in your bones, like all those different cells that are doing different things, performing different functions, they all have embedded in them the same DNA, the same coded information within them. And I, I love that metaphor because the, the church is described, even the verse literally right before the one we're about to read this morning, the local church is described several times in the New Testament as a body. Uh, that, that has different parts, that have different people serving different functions, playing different roles. Uh, but I would argue from uh, various texts in Scripture that within every part, every member of the church, there should be the same core DNA, so to speak, the same belief, the same things that are driving us, whether we're uh, performing a public act or a private act, whether it's in our families or whether it's in the church, or whether it's in a kid's class, whether it's in a meeting, whether uh, it's teaching a lesson or sharing a word of encouragement or singing a song, whatever function we're playing within that, as a person, there should be the same DNA that marks each of us spiritually as a believer. The same things that are driving us and may come out in different ways, but we share that same DNA as believers. And so we want to take seven weeks to highlight what some of those that the core should be of what we believe and how we operate as individuals who are part of a bigger whole. Things that whether we're a pastor or a layman, whether we're a leader or a follower, a participant, or uh, someone who's directing, uh, whatever role we're playing, we want to see what is the, the DNA that should mark us as a believer and the DNA that should mark us as a church. Uh, we, talk, we try to use three words as we're thinking about how we organize our church biblically, uh, and values is the third one, but we try to think of our vision as a church, the venues as a church where we disciple people, and then the values of our church. That's what we're going to be spending seven weeks on. But the vision of our church you hear over and over again, hopefully, and I'll hear it more and more, is that we want to reach the nations and the generations with the gospel of Christ. That's the grand vision that, that we see from the scriptures as God's people. We want to go to the nations, uh, like David and Melissa, and like Chris and Evie, and like many others. Uh, we want to go to the nations with the gospel, and then we want to pass it down to the generations in time. Uh, that's our vision as a church. The venues of our church, the, the places that we disciple people, there's three core ways. We want each of you to be involved in worship, community, and service. 
themselves. They're the three venues where you can grow and where you can uh, flourish as a believer is in worship, community, and service. But as we engage in those, as we worship together, as we're in community together, as we serve each other, we want to be marked by these seven values, these seven biblical values, uh, that third V. And we're going to start with the first one today, but the seven, just to give you a preview, that we're going to take a passage of Scripture and walk through each of these the next Today and next six Sundays are grace, truth, love, family, godliness, joy, and dependence. Those are the seven things that we're going to see from God's word should be embedded in the DNA of us as individuals, as groups, and even as a collective church, these values. And so we're going to take a look at Ephesians 2 today to see the first of these values. See, uh, the, the first one, it is grace. We think of the first strand of DNA in the life of us as individuals and of us as a collective church, the first value that we want uh, to drive us and motivate us as a church family. It's going to be grace. And so I consider this text to be one of the most powerful uh, texts in all of Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed. There's some, though, that seem uh, experientially like they hit harder. They, they have uh, more of a punch, more of effect. In my experience, this is one of these texts, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, because they highlight, it highlights as clear as any other the grace of God towards us what it's like, uh, and how it should impact us in our life. So we're going to read this. This is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. In chapter 1, he has been uh, celebrating and highlighting for them the love of, of God toward them through Jesus. The way that even that he, right at the end of chapter 1, he's talked about how he, uh, the church is his body, Christ's body, how there's become this union of Jesus and his people. But now it's like when he gets to chapter 2, what we're going to read, he steps back for a moment, and he wants to remind them, and, and the Spirit, I think, would want to remind us today through this text of the gracious nature of God uniting us with Jesus, that it's all of grace, that it's, it's not deserved, it's an act of grace of God towards us. And so let's read this text, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and then we'll walk back through it and see how and why this should be embedded in us, in the DNA of us as individual Christians and of, of us as a collective church. So Ephesians 2 1 through 10, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
this is the word of God. But I, I trust even as you hear me read that and your eyes looked over it in your copy of scripture, you see that grace features prominently in this passage. Uh, that if you read all this whole letter of Ephesians, Paul uses the word grace or some form of it 17 times uh, in just six short chapters. In one letter, he's writing the word grace 17 times. In today's text, you saw it three times, right? You saw the word grace. It's like Paul is, is beating this drum, uh, wanting them to hear grace, 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 grace. is all of God's grace. Even in verses 5 and 8, you may have noticed he even says the exact same phrase twice, right? He says at the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And then that's how he starts verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Uh, Paul is wanting and to, to foreground and make very prominent the, the fact, the reality that if you are a saved person, if you've received salvation, it is by God's grace. He, he's making that unquestionable. But the, 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 what we need to think about is, what is grace? It, he's, he's, made, he's featuring it prominently, wanting to, to drive it into our minds and hearts. You're saved by grace. But we need to not assume that we even know what that means. I, we're familiar with the word grace. We use it all the time. I was trying to think of how familiar we've become with it and maybe lose the, 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 the effect of it. We literally live as a church family down the street from Grace College and Seminary, right? We have shirts on, we see signs of it. Some of us are employed by them, we're students there. We have a school down the road. We have one of the most famous songs in all of Christendom is Amazing Grace that we could probably just sing in our sleep, some of us. We are part as a church of a denomination that has the word grace in its title. Sovereign Grace Churches. Uh, we say grace before meals, right? We name our daughters grace. There's probably people in this room named grace. We give, it, professors sometimes give a grace period, right? If you didn't get your assignment in on time, we hear the word. Like we, we say it, it comes out of our mouths a lot. Uh, it comes in and out, of, or not out of our eyeballs, into our eyeballs a lot. We, we see it. Uh, we, uh, we're familiar with the word, but sometimes I think we don't really know what it means, or we don't feel the weight that we should when we hear the word grace, when Paul said, writes the word grace to us. So if we think about what is grace, how, what was Paul talking about when he's, he's speaking of grace? The, the, the best short definition that I've ever heard of grace is actually just two words, and you've probably heard me use it before, but it's unmerited favor unmerited or undeserved favor if you want to think of it that way that there's this favor shown to a person or to a group of people that's not deserved not earned not because given to them because of something they did to get it but it's just given out of grace it, it's unmerited it, it's granted to this person just because the person wants to I was trying to think of an illustration to, to just illustrate a simple level of grace. We'll get to the extravagance of God's grace in a moment. But yesterday, uh, my daughter was invited to a birthday party at the local bowling alley. And it flashed back a memory in my mind. We went over to the arcade near the end of, of uh, the party. And my mind flashed back to several years ago when our son was young. Uh, we were playing in that same arcade, the same place. 
And for some reason, uh, one of the machines, this was before they had like the cards that scan and you know how many tickets you have by what's on the card. They actually, the machines used to actually pump out real tickets. Uh, one of the machines that he played a game on started just malfunctioning and that thing was just spitting out the whole row of tickets. Like it was like it had no break. Like it just was ticket after ticket. Like they're all just strung together. Like we're having to like figure out how to hold these things. And it wasn't because he did awesome, like he just did like a normal whatever like six-year-old would have done at a game, but the thing was broke and it just kept pumping out tickets and tickets and tickets and tickets. We're like, what do we do with this? So we just, I think if I remember right, we just ripped it off even though it was still going and we took them over to like, like full-handed over to the desk and we're like, this machine's broke. Uh, we didn't actually like do anything great. Like it's just broke and it's given us all these tickets and we were just expecting the guy to be like, oh, thank you so much. Like we'll, we'll fix that. But the guy, this is an act of grace, okay? The guy at the ticket counter let my son use all the tickets like to to get prizes and candy and stuff like it wasn't anything that he or we had actually earned by shooting things a certain way or getting a certain score or time on a game it was just something that was given to us as an act of grace it was undeserved favor okay so that's like a a simple kind of real life example of grace where a, a benefit is given to somebody who didn't do something to get it they just receive it And so that is what grace is. God's grace, we're going to see, is infinitely better than tickets and those kind of trivial little snake things you get at the the, uh, bowling alley and candy. Uh, God's grace is better, but it is unmerited favor. And so I want to use those two words to show you some things in this text, unmerited favor, to show you the, the glories of God's grace to us. And then we'll think about how grace should mark our lives as Christians, okay? So if we think of unmerited and unmerited favor, if we're going to really understand the glory of the favor of God to us, how grand that is, we have to understand how unmerited it is, how undeserved it is by us. I want to show you first in this text that we all were spiritually dead. Right? He says that twice. If you, if you see verse 1 and verse 5, Paul says this twice. He's reminding these people who are now alive in Jesus, he's reminding them that once they were dead. He says, starts this whole text by saying, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then in verse 5, he, he's reminding these people who, who God has now made alive, He's reminding them of this previous era in their life. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So he's reminding them that they used to be spiritually dead. Not that they were dying or close to death or like on their way to death. He says, you were dead. You were spiritually dead. And this means at minimum, that we were absolutely unable to please God, right? Absolutely unable to obey Him. Absolutely unable to trust Him, to live for Him, to do anything that would be praiseworthy, anything that would be rewardable by God. We were spiritually dead, lifeless. I I don't use this metaphor lightly. I've used it several times, but even in light of what my wife shared here with us having lost a child, I, I would remind us that we are all spiritual stillborns when we come into this world. That there's none, it's not like we were born with life and then it kind of fizzles out as we get older. We're born spiritually dead. But 
I, I would want us to know and think rightly about this spiritual death because I think sometimes when we hear that word, that we were dead, we just think of ourselves as these victims or like these passive uh, people like uh, that, that we're just these victims who should be pitied, like, man, I entered into this world spiritually dead. And I, we, we tend to think like there was some inclination in us to obey God, some inclination in us to trust God, and we just lack the ability to do it. That's how we think of death. It's like there, we think of ourselves maybe as neutral towards God and just unable to get over the hump, unable to actually muster up the will to obey him. But that is not the type of death that Paul is talking about. He's not talking about, and I don't know how to phrase this. I've been thinking all week how to, to phrase this. But we are not passively dead, if this makes sense. We are actively dead, according to this text. Like, Paul says you were dead. And then notice, then he starts rattling off these verbs of things we were doing. Right? These acts of disobedience. These things, not just that we were dead doing nothing spiritually, neutral, but that we were dead and then we were actively dead. We were actively rebelling against God. And probably the best way would just be to show you. So you look, verse 1 and 2. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? So there, there's this walking in disobedience, walking in trespasses and sins even while we're dead. He continues with another verb. He says that you were following the course of this world. That's not a good thing. That, that's these patterns of sin. You were following them. You weren't just spiritually lifeless doing nothing. You were following the courses of this world. And then he says on top of that, he even says you were following a person. You're following, he calls him, the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's probably no mystery to you that he's talking about Satan himself. That, that we're not spiritually dead doing nothing as neutral. We are following Satan. Whether we realize it or not, we're following after him in our spiritual death. And yes, he may deceive us. Paul talks about that in other letters, how he deceives us, Satan deceives us, but we make no mistake, we are eager to follow him. Like we are glad to follow him. And you can see that in verse 3 as he, he continues using these verbs. He says, talking about these sons of disobedience, he says that we all once lived among them in the passions of our flesh. So he even uses the word alive, that we lived, right? Even though he said we are dead, that we lived in the passions of our flesh. That it's not just these temptations that are out there, but there's passions of our flesh within us that we follow after, that, that we go, that we follow these impulses and these desires, these intrinsic passions of our flesh. And then verse 3, he says uh, that we carried out the desires of the body and mind. That is not a passive verb. We were actively disobeying God. And so I would suggest to you that as you think of God's unmerited favor to us, that unmerited is actually not strong enough of a term. And I don't know the right word to use in its place, but it's not just that we are neutral, passive, dead, lifeless, but that we are enemies of God. We are rebels against God. That is the type of death that we lived in. He even says in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. That last statement means 
all of us have been in that boat or in that boat right now. That, that we deserve, what we deserve for that active rebellion against God is his wrath, his anger, his punishment. And we may have been by nature of children of wrath, but we persisted in that by choice, didn't we? We're, we're not just these helpless victims. We rebelled against God. We defied him. We ran away from him. We are not spiritual victims. As hard as this is to hear, we were spiritual traitors towards God. We are not just helpless. We're rebellious towards God, right? We, it's not like we just had laid down our arms of, of hostility towards God and now we're neutral and just needing him to, to save us. We are rebelling with arms up, going against him, defying him. We are rebels against him. So we are by nature children of wrath, deserving his judgment. That is unmerited. It's too light of a word, isn't it? But when you know what we deserve, when you know that state that we were in of hostility towards God that all of us have been in or are in, when you know how unmerited it is and you know what we deserve, then that second word, favor of God, just makes your heart soar. And it, it, it melts hearts of stone. It makes you know the depth of what God has done for you. And so I, I want to show you in this text that, that second word, the favor of God, that is his grace toward us. It, it's unmerited, but then he shows us this great, undeserved favor. So he, he turns the corner on this as he gets to verse 4. He says, but God. Then he, de he describes what the motive of God was in eventually making us alive together with Jesus. He says, God was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So he's, he's God's orientation towards us, verse 5, even while we were dead, even while we were rebellious, even while we are defying him, was that he had a great love toward us and that he's rich in mercy towards us. That is the heart of God, even towards people who were rebels, even toward us as we were in our rebellion against him. God is rich in mercy and great in love. And then in verse 5, this is the, the favor of God that comes to us. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. That is a glorious thing. Uh, the, our hearts can never soak that in, uh, believe that fully enough, uh, understand that completely. It's impossible for us. But he says that he made us alive together with Christ. If you had read this letter coming up to this point, you would have read Ephesians 1, where he reminds them that, that the same Jesus, the same Christ who God the Father had punished on the cross, who God had laid the sins of us upon and, and crushed him upon the cross in our place, that he didn't leave him in the tomb, right? But that he raised him from the dead on the third day, that Sunday morning long ago. He raised Jesus up from the dead and then brought him back up into heaven. Had him ascend to heaven to sit at his right hand. That Jesus, the one who was crucified for our sins and raised for us so that we might have eternal life. Who's ascended and at the right hand of the Father. Paul says... All of us rebels and people who've defied God and who have, have shaken our fists at him even in our spiritual death, he has united you, he has united us now with that Jesus. 
Uh, the same life, the same eternal life that he gave to him that Sunday morning long ago, he now gives to you because you're joined with him. That is glorious. That is undeserved. That is blessing beyond what you can even comprehend. That he has made us alive together. And throughout Ephesians, especially these first couple chapters, Paul over and over again has wanted us to know and believe that the glories of what we've received when we've been united with Jesus. That we have every spiritual blessing. That we have eternal life. That we have the favor of God. We have the peace of God. We have the hope of resurrection ourselves. There's so many blessings that God gives to us by uniting us with his son. We're made alive together with Christ. Right? And he raised us with him, verse 6. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is a glorious thing. That, that God did not just... When we come to faith in Jesus, when we're born again, it's not just that God gives us forgiveness and then just tolerates us and lets us stay at a distance, but he unites us with his very son, right at his right hand, the, one that, the son that he delights in, the son that he has given eternal reward to. We're now united with him, and we're recipients of those same blessings. We're recipients of those same rewards. We are not kept at a distance, but we are seated at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus Christ. I love how we sang earlier, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Like that is the gift that God has given to us, is that, that we can be united with his son, Jesus. And Paul emphasized in this text that it is by grace that we've received that. That, that, that we've been united with Jesus, we've been joined with him, and now we can actually be forgiven, and we can experience the blessing of God because we're united with Jesus. But Paul says the way that we've been united with Jesus, the way we've received this blessing, isn't by doing works. The, the way that we've been united with Jesus and received those blessings isn't by cleaning up our act isn't by doing active penance, isn't by saying enough prayers, isn't by giving enough money to the church, isn't by living long enough in faith and obedience. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? He says that in verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith. As we hear this good news of a, a Savior who came and died in our place upon the cross and then was raised from the dead to live forever, the Savior who can offer forgiveness and eternal life, the response that God calls forth from us, first and foremost and ongoingly, is faith. It, it, it's, there's obedience that's called, which we'll look in a moment, but what he calls, what unites us with Jesus is faith. That, that we, it, it's not by doing works. There's an analogy uh, author has used, I may have shared it before, that has been very helpful for me. Instead of thinking about works that we do to, to impress God or put ourselves in his good graces, the metaphor that I've heard this author use is that we collapse into the arms of Jesus. That that is a, a giving up of effort to try to please God. It's a falling into the arms of the one who died for us and was raised for us. It's not something we do for him, but resting ourselves upon what he has done for us. That is how you are saved, is by that faith. That is what unites you with Christ. Not cleaning yourself up, not doing enough good works, but resting your soul upon Christ himself, the one who died and was raised you and if this morning if you have not been united with Jesus 
If you have not placed your faith in that one who died for you and was raised for you, I would call you to do that this morning. To hear this text, hear this call, that you can be saved by faith in Christ. To, to lean, to collapse into the arms of Jesus. To, to not think, man, I, these people have it all together. I need to get my act together and start doing the right things spiritually to get approved by God. But collapse into the arms of Jesus. Rest your soul upon him. Rest uh, your faith upon him. It is not everyone is seated with Christ in the heavenly places, right? And if we are not, if we have not been united with Jesus by faith, if you, hear me on this, if you have not been united with Christ by placing your faith in him, you are still living in verse 3. Like you are still, like I once was, a child of wrath. Like that is what you deserve, that is what you will rightfully receive if you die outside of Jesus. If you die not united with him by faith as you will receive wrath and judgment of God. But if you will rest your soul upon him, turn from your sin, rest your soul upon the one who died and was raised for you, then you will be raised with him and seated with him and you will get to be with him and with all his people for all eternity. And that can change today. This verse four can happen in you today. That but God moment can happen today for you if you replace your faith in his crucified and resurrected son. And this is all of grace, right? Even verse eight is pointing out that even our faith, even that collapsing into the arms of Jesus is a gift of God to us. Like it's not like that's the first good work that we do to get God's approval. Faith is not a good work that God looks at and is impressed by. Faith itself is a gift of God by his Holy Spirit. It's a gift of grace, not deserved by us, but it's a work that he does in us, that he enables within us. So this grace that Paul is emphasizing is unmerited favor, both of which are probably not strong enough words, but unmerited favor of God to us in Jesus, through Jesus. But it's to change our lives. Grace is supposed to change the way that we live, the way that we function as people. And I want to just highlight a few ways that grace should impact the way we live individually, the way that we live collectively, the way that it should get into our DNA as a church and then flesh out in all sorts of ways. You see in verse 10 that the, Paul is saying as these recipients of grace, there's a change that God does work in us. We used to walk in trespasses and sins, right? But verse 10 says now that we walk in good works, that, that we live for Christ. And some of those good works that we share, all of them really, should be motivated by grace. The, the, the grace that God has shown to us in Christ the grace that he has shown to us in Christ should make us gracious toward each other in the church, right? That as recipients of grace, we should be givers, extenders of grace to others. Paul says later in this letter, Ephesians 5.1, he tells them to be imitators of God. And one of the clearest ways we can do that is by seeking to extend grace to each other, to be marked by grace towards God's people. I appreciated uh, Pastor Larry was sharing with me and some others this uh, week when I was asking about this text, some words from a mentor that uh, had told, that words that had been given to him by a mentor years ago, where that mentor had said, those most gripped by God's grace tend to be the most gracious. 
I love that. That, that when we really understand how gracious God's been to us, that's going to motivate us to be gracious towards others. When my son got those tickets uh, years ago, uh, one of the things we tried as a life lesson in that moment to do was to make him uh, give those, some of those tickets to other kids uh, there in the, the room. And I thought that was a good picture of being one who had been extended grace being gracious to others. It was kids he didn't know, like kids he didn't know if they're a good person or a bad person or they need tickets or they got a bunch of tickets already. But we had him give just graciously, uh, not because they deserved it, but give them uh, some of his tickets. And, and he did, which I appreciated because I don't know how I would have done with that at his age. Um, but we are to be extenders of grace. So let me share a couple quick ways, but important ways that we can show grace in the life of our church. The first would be humility. This is probably the core, uh, core expression of this. If you look at verse 9, Paul said uh, that grace is by faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. When we understand that God's favor to us is not deserved, that, it, that it's not earned by us, it's not merited by us, then we have no grounds for boasting about its presence in our life, do we? no grounds for being cocky about the fact that I am a Christian or the fact that God is growing me in certain ways. All of that is grace. There should be no boasting in our church, in any church, no boasting before God or before others about the gifts that he has given to us, right? That when, even when we see growth in our life or we see growth in our kids or in the people we're discipling or in our church, when we see growth, we cannot take credit for those things. We cannot boast of those things, but every good gift is a gift of grace to us. And so grace should work its way out in humility. Grace should work its way out in relational context, shouldn't it? Primarily in forgiveness towards each other, but also in forbearing and assuming the best of each other. Uh, we are in a church full, there's no surprise, but a church full of sinful people uh, who do things at minimum that are annoying to each other at times, that are not our preferences. Uh, we sin against each other. We do wrong towards each other. And what grace calls us to do is to not look at those brothers and sisters who've annoyed me or who've wronged me and want to get back at them to wish ill upon them or to wait till they change till I'm kind to them, right? God loved us and showed us grace even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? And when our brothers and sisters wrong us, we don't wait till they change to show grace to them. We don't wait till our kindness is merited, right? We show forgiveness. We show patience with them. We bear with them. In this same letter, Ephesians 4, verse 32 Paul called this church, he said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, hear this, as God and Christ forgave you. That's a, an example of you've been shown grace, show grace to each other. That, that should be a mark of our church is that we're forbearing with each other and we're forgiving toward each other. Grace should come out in how we serve, shouldn't it? the ways that we use our gifts that God's given us in the life of the church, there should be graciousness even in that, that we don't use the gifts that God has given to us for the, we, I'll say it this way, we use those gifts for the benefit of other people, not for the recognition of other people, right? Like we don't serve people because they deserve it or because they'll give something back to us, that we'll get kickback from it, of their applause or a good reputation. We serve for their benefit. 
That's graciousness, is that I'm showing favor and kindness and grace towards you, not because you deserve it, but because I want to and because I'm called to show it to you. Even though you may be undeserving, even though you may be able to give me nothing in return. We serve because we want to impart something to people, not to get something back from them, right? It should come, graciousness should come out in our generosity, a similar idea that, that we give of the resources God's given to us, not to get some financial kickback from it, but to expand the kingdom of God. It should come out in our evangelism, that we don't, when we are thinking of sharing the gospel with people, we're not just looking for the people who are partially alive and, and thinking, oh, they're close to the kingdom. I'll go tell the gospel to those people. We take the gospel to dead people. And we have confidence as we do it, as we share it, because salvation is a work of God. And so even our evangelism should be marked by grace. Our parenting should be marked by grace. That as we care for the children that God's entrusted to us, we are trying to guard against them having performance anxiety or or wondering if my love and my kindness, my uh, care for them is based on their actions, based on their approvability, or am I showing them love because I'm called to show them love, because they're someone who God has created and someone that God has entrusted to me. Is my parenting even marked by unmerited favor toward my kids? It should come out in how we work when we have uh, lazy coworkers or rude customers. We should be marked by grace towards them as well. Not waiting for them to merit my kindness, but extending it to them no matter what. The last thing I want to say about uh, graciousness is that as we extend grace towards each other in the life of our church, it should be a kind graciousness, not a begrudging graciousness. I think sometimes we think of grace as just, okay, I need to just do the right thing and just forgive this person. I guess I got to be nice to this person. I guess I need to forgive them. I have no desire to, but I'm just going to suck it up and do it. If we're to be imitators of God, did you see the word kindness in there? Uh, Even in God's grace, there should be, even if we don't feel the full strength of it, there should be a desire to show grace to people. A delight even in showing grace to people. It is hard. It is taxing at times. But we don't just begrudgingly show grace to people. Uh, We kindly show grace to each other. But it is hard to show grace, isn't it? Uh, It's a divine thing God has to work in us. We struggle at it, myself included. And when we fail at showing grace towards others, guess what we need? Grace, right? We need more grace And thankfully, God continues to give it, right? Uh, Grace is not just something he gives to us, one installment, boom, here's everything you need. See you later. See you when death comes or when I send Jesus back. He gives grace to us and then He to save and to unite us with Jesus and he keeps giving grace, right? You look at the beginning and end of this letter, Ephesians. You look at Ephesians 1, 2. To this church that has been saved by grace, Paul starts the letter by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He knew they needed more grace, just like every Christian needs more grace. So he's writing, may grace be to you. And then he ends the letter, Ephesians 6, 24, by saying, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He's leaving them saying, may there be more grace given to you as you continue living. And even in the last thing I want to say, in, the, in today's text itself, Ephesians 2, 6 through 7, 
I want you to see that God's provision of grace will never stop. That faucet will never be turned off for his people. Verse 6, he says that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then here, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, God is still wanting to show his grace by showing us kindness through the person of Jesus. And so God's provision of grace will never end, right? By God's grace, no pun intended, uh, by God's grace, if a thousand years from now, a billion years from now, like we're breathing that air of the new earth, we're enjoying the saints, we're worshiping Christ, we will be there. You will be there. I will be there. Not because we deserve it, but because God has granted it, right? Because he has united us with Jesus. It will be because of grace. And we'll keep growing and growing in our knowledge and our delight in God's grace. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing one more song. Uh, reveling in this graciousness of God from start to finish. Then I'll leave you with a word of benediction. But let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful recipients of your grace, of your common grace just in giving us life, giving us beautiful weather, giving us buildings to meet in, giving us uh, homes, giving us cars, giving us teachers, but we're particularly grateful for your special grace that you've given to your people by uniting us with Jesus. God, may we see all good gifts as coming from your hand particularly the union that we have now with Jesus. May we revel in the fact that you have granted dead, rebellious sinners like us the privilege of being united with your son. So even as we sing, may you be brought honor. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.